Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be speaking with Cynthia J. Miller, one of the editors of the book, 1950s Rocketman TV series and their fans, Cadets, Rangers, and Junior Spacemen. The book was published in 2012 by Paul Welcome to New Books in Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be speaking with Cynthia J. Miller, one of the editors of the book, 1950s Rocketman TV series and their fans, Cadets, Rangers, and Junior Spacemen. The book was published in 2012 by Paul Grave Macmillan. One of the most enduring genres for young people as television grew in popularity were series featuring outer space adventures. Growing from the Flash Gordon movie serials, these shows filled the air in the 1950s, affecting both entertainment and the consumer culture. The series were also major influences on modern filmmakers, including George Lucas. This collection of essays examines the genre in many different and interesting ways. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Cynthia Miller. Welcome, Cindy. How are you today? I'm very well, Joel. Thanks so much. How are you? Not bad. Um, I know we were just talking briefly about our, our both of our menageries that we have in our houses, so don't know for sure whether, whether any of them are going to take part in the interviews, but hopefully not. Um, before we start talking about this book, uh, let's talk about you a little bit. Could you give the listeners some of your background? Tell us a little bit about what brings you to where you are today as far as what you do. Oh my goodness, this has been a, um, a winding path. Uh, I'm an anthropologist by training, and I started out as a very traditional field worker and moved into um, the anthropology of film. And my master's work was in the Yucatan with um, telenovelas, and my PhD research was in South India with Tamil cinema. And so I sort of all through grad school got tagged as the, the, the visual anthropologist in the crowd. And as I started working, you know, several jobs at once teaching and fieldwork was less of an option, I just kind of moved into uh, work that was closer to home and doing U.S.-based uh, or at least things I could get my hands on um, film and, and television and I actually started with old westerns. <laughs> okay. Um, and what do you? What is your current work in? I mean, what's your? What, what do we call your occupation? Your day job? Uh, my day job. Uh, I'm a professor at Emerson College uh, in downtown Boston, and I teach in the interdisciplinary institute there. And do you teach regularly in film, or do you do you do other anth- teaching? Well, actually, because I'm in the Institute, all of our classes are first year seminars and they um, 
they draw together several different disciplines that's part of the mission. So I teach classes like Making Monsters, and I teach a class on the culture of burlesque and vaudeville. And I teach classes on the city and some activism and advocacy classes that kind of harken back to my old anthropology days uh, called Local Action Global Change. Wow. And so when we talk about subjects like this that we're talking about with this book, for example, and some of the other things you've written, uh, it comes from your, your, your anthropological background, but it's also popular culture. It is. I'm definitely the popular culture girl. <laughs> um, I A long time ago, I made up my mind that I really didn't want to do anything that wasn't fun. And so I tend to work in topics that I gravitate to because I enjoy them to begin with. And that way it never feels like I'm working. It is interesting that in the scholarly writing, scholarly uh, books field, we see a lot more things that would be considered more popular culture, but in a an academic way, which I think is helping to bring people to read the material because it's topics that they're interested in, where sometimes uh, some of the more esoteric academic writings can be the only other people that are reading them are, you know, the people that are in that exact field with, with very little over um, reaching to any place else. So that's actually quite good as far as, inter- especially when we talk interdisciplinary, which is obviously quite important with liberal arts uh, education. Yeah. Well, and for me, as you know, as a as a lapsed anthropologist, too, it's all about culture. So popular culture tends to be things that we don't think about. We just do. You know, we don't think about why we watch what we watch at the movies or why we watch the things that we watch on television or what they mean or what function they play in our lives or our culture, or our society. Um, we just enjoy them. And so it's nice to look at it from that other aspect, too, that says, OK, here's all the taken for granted. Now let's talk about those, because I don't think anything happens by accident. Well, that's the thing. I mean, just in the, the various things I've written and in preparation for some of these interviews also, it's just, it's like you say, very nothing happens that you could say was by accident. And understanding how things have changed and how they really haven't changed that much uh, over time is an important aspect of what uh, we as scholars you know, want to do. We want to show why things have, have not changed and how what we think are new often are based on things that have been around for a long time. And so uh, that's not a surprise that you would be drawn that way. Um, so let's talk a little bit about this book. Uh, as I say, the book is... It, it, it's it's based on the concept of the of the ninth of basically the 1950s uh, science fiction television shows that were um, geared towards young people. Um, and I mentioned earlier in my introduction that part of the issue was is that television was building up; it was becoming new, it, but it also had a lot of time to fill. And little by little, as it grew in popularity, this whole concept of science fiction as a as a subject became very popular um and uh i was mentioning to you before we started the interview that i interviewed chris taylor whose book uh how star wars conquered the universe is out and he talks a lot in the book about how george lucas was affected by not only flash gordon and those serials but 
In fact, that's where he got the title of the book, How Star Wars Conquered the Universe, comes right from the serial How Flash Gordon Conquered the Universe. But the same concept of those kind of issues and how they transferred over to television. Um, First off, since you're the editor or one of the editors of the book, can you give me a little bit of background as to what led you to decide that this was a topic that was worth writing about? Oh, absolutely. And this is one of the fun parts of the story, actually. Um, I had been asked by a colleague to contribute to his volume that was on science fiction television. And the piece that I was drawn to was early television, because I tend to go early anyway. And I started looking at the serials and how they were adapted to early TV series. And I found one that just caught my attention. I couldn't put it down. I kept going back to it and saying, gosh, when this is over, I really need to do something with this. And it was Captain Zero uh, who had started out as a, it started out as a West Coast series and then was syndicated after a few years. And it was a piece of educational television that was he was a rocket man um much like captain video tom corbett and all the rest but he had this educational component he actually the show won a kev Fowler award for excellence in children's education um and he was he was this character that had this time machine built into his spacecraft and so he would not only venture out into space but backward in time um, to make sure that history unfolded the way that it was supposed to and teach his young sidekick all about the ins and outs of not only American but world history. And so I knew that I wanted to do something with that, and I didn't think that that series itself was enough to sustain an entire book. So my co-editor, Bo Van Riper, and I started brainstorming about, well, you know, what could we do with this? And it was probably during the course of about a 20-minute conversation that we said, well, you know what, why not do the book looking at all of these old series or as many of them as we can find folks who are interested in writing about because they all have so many things in common culturally and yet they have these little variations. So that was pretty much how that started. Yeah, it's it's an interesting um, as we, we we've already talked about, is that as a topic, um, there's quite a bit there. I mean, part of the problem I suspect is how many of these can you actually still find uh, video? You know, things that have made it into into a video of some sort that you can actually see episodes, because that's the unfortunate part of that period of time, in particular of television, is so much material was not saved. So when you were first starting your writing, were you did what were your, what was your success as far as finding actual recordings that you could use to study? We got very lucky. Um, there's a big, like, 150-episode um, anthology that's out on DVD that draws on an awful lot of these. Um, so I found nearly every episode of Captain Zero for my own chapter. And in looking for the rest of them, there were an awful lot of, um, well, Tom Corbett, Space Cadet, and Space Patrol have been very well preserved. Um, Captain Video, the earliest one, is the one that was the real problem. Um, because there are only about four remaining episodes. 
So that was kind of a tough one to to navigate and one that was really important to include, too. So um, we had to do an awful lot of research to to unearth whatever we could about that one. Yeah, I know even Doctor Who, there are some of the early episodes, even though that's not part of what you were writing about, which this book is about. But Doctor Who is an example of some of the early seasons that are just not available. Um, they've been trying to pull it together, but there are still some. And that, that show started in the 60s, and yet there are still episodes that are just not available. And so that's it's sort of like the archaeologist trying to find full proof of things and having to dig and not always finding everything they're looking for. Um, exactly. Yeah. Oh, I, was, I was really fortunate, actually, when I started this because Captain Zero was still alive. I was going to say, I was wondering how many of the people who might have been involved with the uh, various series uh, either had things that were helpful for, for the studying or at least were available to talk about some of these various things and how these series and how they happened in real time. Yeah, not many. Um, and and Captain Zero was, you know, he was obviously, he was, uh, gosh, in his early 90s um and he was kind of tough to to get a hold of just by virtue of age and health and all that um i talked a lot to his daughter who had some great memories um and then he ended up passing right before the book was published which was a little sad (laughs) so obviously the book starts with Flash Gordon and the Flash Gordon serials, which, if most people think at all, is is probably where, when we think of old rocket ship type uh, material, film or TV, probably Flash Gordon's the first name most people would be most likely to remember. So obviously, you the book begins back in that period. Uh, what did uh, came out of that? studying of that material obviously uh the various people you brought together to write these various uh chapters they obviously had to have the interest already but did you have a sense that that's where you wanted to start in the first place and therefore tried to find people who would be available to write in the general topics you were interested in we did um because this book was really kind of a more of a labor of love than anything. Um, we decided that we didn't want to do that typical academic put out a call for papers and see what you get back. So we went directly to people who we knew already had an interest and did work in each of these areas and asked them if they'd like to do something for us. So for instance, Roy Kennard, who did the Flash Gordon chapter, has a wonderful book out on on the Flash Gordon film serials. And so we went right to him and said, you know, hey, how'd you like to come play? Um, and he was very, very gracious about, you know, contributing a chapter that would help set the stage for the rest of the material. Because all of these did originate with those movie house serials that were so easy to import right to television and had the pre-established uh, juvenile audience already as well. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of this is what I you know, was saying earlier about how much of television, as we know, came from two places. It came from radio with established series made into television, and it came from, like you say, movie serials, which were probably the closest we could come up to to, to, to compare. 
uh, because they were, you know, they were series. They weren't individual. Like um, obviously a movie was shown and that was it where with a serial, it, it had characters that came back over and over again. Um, what, so you basically, do you feel like the structure was pretty well set ahead of time and therefore you tried to fill in as needed to, to within the individual categories of the book or did it, did, did you had to change, did you have to change things around as you went, as you found people who were available for what you wanted for the book? Well, we were very lucky because nearly everyone we asked said yes. And I hadn't been expecting that at all, but I found that the folks who work with this material, um, did it for the same reason that we did and we're very happy to have another chance to um, get information out there and write about things that they loved. So no one objected and, um, and was really, you know, everyone was very enthusiastic about it. And in fact, it's the only project that I've ever done where I've had contributors send me work early. <laughs> I was about to say, we'll talk a little bit later about the, just the general <laughs> issues of being an editor of a book, but of a collection like this, but yes, I can imagine that that's probably one of the least favorite parts of a job is having to keep after people to get the work in. Of course, that's also the problem with being a teacher. You have to do the same thing. Yeah, it's, it's all of a piece. You, you know, do it at school, do it at home. Um, but you know, most people are, are very good, but this was just really surprising because, you know, you give people a deadline six or eight months out and I was getting essays in, in two and three months. Well, see, the thing with students, you can always hold things over on them. It's a little easier. It's called a grade. But anyway, let's take a little bit closer look then at the, the book itself and, and the structure you came up with and, and the various chapters. So obviously, as we mentioned, the prologue deals with the Flash Gordon serials. And it's, uh, Roy Kennard wrote Where It All Began, the Flash Gordon serials, which, as we've already pretty much said, is to a large extent uh, they were the examples that television was going to, to build off of. Now, Flash Gordon wasn't the first movie serial that was based on a fa- on a space uh, theme, though, but probably in many ways he's the most well-known. Uh, but then if the, at the end of the book, you come back to one of the other ones, Commando Cody, who uh, also was one of the space um, uh, serials out there. Uh, talk a little bit about how these serials became so interesting to people, and especially, as you say, young people, and let's face it, young men, and that we that they became so easy to translate over into television. Well, there was a lot going on in that era because what we really see is young young boys uh, who are fans of either space heroes initially or cowboys. And so this, this kind of ties in a, in a way to my, my early work in, in cowboy films and serials as well, because that had a huge youth fan base. You know, everybody had their favorite cowboy. And as these series and serials got, um, popularized, especially in in the movie theaters and then when they moved to television, um, what you found was was space fever taking over, where all of those young fans from Cowboys 
transferred their their fandom over to um, space heroes. And instead of everybody carrying six guns and, and having a little cowboy hat and boots, everybody had to have um, a para-ray gun or um, an opticon salometer or a cosmic vibrator and a spaceman's hat. Um, and so it was very easy to, to become, to, to transfer that fandom and to, to have this whole new set of heroes. And it was long before we had these, our real world set of space heroes, which actually, you know, we can talk about later is kind of the demise of all this when there were actually real world heroes to, to look up to. Yeah. Cause um, you're right about, and I've seen this before, the whole idea of cowboys and space, um, uh, um, rocket men, so to speak, they tend to have the, 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 the adventures themselves are very much alike in the sense that, uh, you know, we're talking about people in strange locations meeting dangerous people or, da- or in as far as the space materials concerned, dangerous creatures sometimes, um, and, um, figuring out how to get around and, and, and work on it. So it is not a surprise that there would be a lot of comparisons between the two. Um, so then the first section of the book after the prologue is called Learning to be Rocket Men. And obviously it's meant to sort of help get a better sense of how the uh, various series um, affected or became popular with with young people. And the first uh, chapter in that section deals with Tom Corbett and, his, and, and the Lost Boys. Um, what made you decide that that was a good place to start as far as these this more introductory part of of the rocket men in the 50s television shows well one of our big concerns was the fans themselves and how people were how, how kids were cultivated as fans how the shows spoke to their juvenile audiences. I mean, all of these, you had these kids who were going to movie house serials on the weekends and spending their, what my dad tells me was a dime to, uh, to go in and see, you know, the A feature, the B feature, the newsreels, the cartoons, all that. And, and they'd, sit through these these cliffhangers every week and go back for the next one and back for the next one. And so these were really speaking to kids to get them back week after week. And when they moved to television in their living rooms, it took that pre-established relationship as a starting point. And you brought these rocket men right into your home and they they became more than television figures or even more than the, the movie house serial figures had been but they became these intimate relationships you know coming into your living room every week and teaching you how to be american how to be a hero um how to be a you know a grown-up um, which for kids was just fascinating and very, very compelling. Um, most of it was geared toward boys, but there were some female figures in some of the shows. Um, I think there, there's room for a lot more work there about how this worked with girls. We've got a chapter in there on girls and space fever that Amy Foster did, and she's done a lot of work with women in the space program. And there's... 
there's some scholarship that indicates that girls audience these the same way boys did, you know, rooted for the same things, projected themselves into the same roles. But there were also these girls there, too, um, who were accepted in one breath and in the next were told that maybe they'd be better off knitting a sweater. You know, or you, you know, are you sure you don't want to fix your lipstick first or, you know, something like that. So, um, so there are these, these interesting contradictory messages, um, and then messages for the boys about leadership and about intellect and about, you know, heroism and, and all of that, that, that we thought were very foundational to, to starting to think about these. I I remember seeing the first of the Commando Cody series and they get on the rocket ship to go to the moon and there is a female uh, on the, on the rocket with them. And they said, you know, getting ready. So why are you taking her with you? He said, well, somebody has got to pour the coffee and that kind of, that it became nowadays we would look at that and we would laugh at it back then. It probably was just an automatic thing where, but I can imagine that having female cast members in, even back then was as a meant to they wanted to try to vary the um the overall uh audience and that was the easiest way to do it and uh even if it meant that you had to use more um um how do we say um stereotypes you still did it because at least it gave you a chance to include more characters that might reach more people Exactly. And, you know, as you say, at that point, the stereotypes were the way of the world. You know, we, we read them entirely differently now and kind of cringe or, or, you know, but, um, or, or laugh. But at that point, you know, at that moment in time, um, those stereotypes were just very, very typical um, and probably um, not that different from any of the stereotypes you would find in, in any kind of adult programming. So then... Um what uh the next section then almost immediately we start talking about how these series and were so important to to the to the target audience so to speak by discussing how teenagers were appearing in the series male teenagers and specifically as assistance to the uh heroes and almost immediately the idea that and it's not that different from what we see in other similar uh, types of materials, including comic books and others, where it was not unusual to bring in a younger person, usually male, to help uh, give the people who are watching the series or the movies or whatever something that they could relate to a little bit easier. Oh, absolutely. These were the figures that the young boys in the audience could project themselves into. And, you know, it becomes that fantasy projection of, hey, that could be me. You know, I could be doing that. I could be having that adventure. And these were, you know, very distinctly Cold War heroes. They were the the rocket men were were exemplars of, you know, social and political and masculine success. Um, You know, this is a time when the world is changing a lot and ideas about what it means to be a successful male in America um, is changing. And so this is really kind of indoctrination feels too strong a word, but it's, it's really mentoring these, you know, young boys on screen and hence the young viewers at home about what it's going to mean to be a, a grown up male in the Cold War era. Um, a lot more emphasis on awareness of global issues 
you know, written in these as, you know, interstellar issues um, of cultural awareness, of intellect and education. You know, all of these rocket men uh, were not only heroic figures, but they were smart. Yeah, and and that's, that's kind of the first time that you see that really emphasized in a hero figure. The other thing that came out was that they were also men of science, uh, which by this point in time, science is, I think it was in many ways, it's the, it's the explosion of the atomic bomb that in many ways changes everybody's outlooks to the, where, where science suddenly becomes something that is important to the average person, where you have to understand that this was people who knew a lot about science figured this out. And I think it's one of the reasons why we see science becoming very important as a topic for, uh, you know, not just science fiction, but the science part was there as well. Oh, exactly. When you think about the ways that they were referred to in these series, they were electronic wizards. They were research explorers in time and space, uh, guardians of the safety of the world. Um, those are some very, you know, impressive um, science-oriented titles that really kind of shed light on them as as intellectual figures and sort of forward thinking figures, um, you know, much more atomic age scientific know-how than just combat skills or physical prowess, which was the emphasis in earlier versions of heroes like military heroes or cowboy heroes. And that, and the fact that I think there's no surprise that the cold war made it, you know, made all of this even more possible. There's no question that this whole issue of science and space and exploration and, and not so much the exploration part, but even at the end of World War II, as more and more as rockets became to be used as a way to deliver bombs and this whole issue. And then, of course, as the 50s wore on, particularly as led to Sputnik and, and then later after that, that uh, science and space were becoming so more such a popular topic in the news that it was not unusual that that that, that the uh, series uh, producers would come up with that as a topic to continually come back to. Exactly. And you found this, these sorts of teachings in all of the series just kind of peppered through them so that the message was, was very continual to these young audiences. Um, in Rod Brown of the Rocket Rangers, um, there's a they, they have these, you know, cadet pledges, you know, um, junior rocket men pledges. And one of their pledges is to never cross orbits with the rights and beliefs of others. Um, and another one is to, you know, keep my scanner tuned to learning and remain coupled to my studies. So there, you know, there were all these social messages about um, science and how necessary it was in the Cold War era as well. And. Yeah, because that's the thing about the Cold War. I've always thought about it as it was such a strange dichotomy, the Cold War, because, yes, we had there were actually two parts to it. It was there was the Red Scare and those issues, the issues of fear of communism. But then the second issue was this whole issue of the fear of nuclear war and nuclear bombs. And they weren't always combined. They were separate issues in many ways. And understanding how the science part became more and more you know, it just became a normal thing that you had to learn more and more about that aspect of things, the whole science and why science was so important to know. 
Mm, and I also think that this is an era where we find just knowing stuff getting to be more and more important all by itself. You know, this is the age of the home encyclopedia and games that test your knowledge about things that families would, would play after dinner. So, so there is this whole new culture of the value of, of intellect that I think really marks, you know, the 50s, you know, the atomic age going forward. So then what did Amy Foster, what was her point that she made? What did she find when it comes to girls in these uh, series? Well, Amy's point was that girls enjoyed these as much as boys did um, and were able to relate to the heroics, um, whether or not there was necessarily a female figure for them to identify with, because there were, you know, precious few women that were involved in these and and young girls, especially the, the sort of token girl on the crew. But the girls always had to be smarter. You know, you had to be the linguist. You had to, you know, much more training, much more education. Um, and typically women who were in positions of power tended to be um, the evil figures. So so you've got the, the sort of female villains who have the power and the other female figures tend to be much more hardworking crew members. So there's a real sharp dichotomy there. And sometimes it comes down to is being as clear as the brunette versus the blonde. <laughs> it's interesting how certain themes appear again and again over in all kinds of culture like that. Oh, yeah, you see that in, in a lot of, of noir narratives or even going back to the, you know, cowboy stories. Or you know, Archie cow- comics. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> we, we have two, two women who are, who are the most important parts of the, of the Archie comics, and one's blonde and one's brunette. And Superman was one's black, but brunette and one's redhead. So there, there were always were these kind of differences that were being pointed at in, when it came to particularly with women in, in these stories. Yeah, exactly. But these were, you know, these were sort of attainable role models, at least in the in the young girl form where, you know, they they didn't necessarily think that they could potentially go out tomorrow and become, you know, a crew member. But it gave them interests and aspirations in science, in technology, in um, in chemistry and a number of the women who have been in the space program and still are pointed to growing up with these series and having and drawing some inspiration from them as well. So then the second section of the book is called Reaching for Tomorrow. And what were you trying to, uh, what points were you trying to make with these, with the three essays that are in this part? Well, one of the things that's going on during this era is that while these series are on television, the real world space program is also starting to develop. And so you've got the idea of space fever, of America's obsession with space and and going out into space, exploring, you know, the new frontier, becoming a part of people's lived realities and not just on television. So you've got this confluence of of TV fantasy and science fiction meeting 
the real world fledgling space program, which fueled a lot of interest and a lot of support for the space program, which was really important to the success of both. Because these series on television fueled interest in young men, you know, becoming, you know, getting smart and becoming part of the space program and aspiring to maybe someday be an astronaut or a space hero um, and a lot of support going to what the national government was doing in terms of um, its own development in the fledgling space program at the time. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the whole some of the the essays in that section continually use the word reality as a as an important aspect of the space of what was going on. I mean, things that people were that young people were seeing as part of these television shows were beginning. Some of the aspects were starting to become real, and uh, even though they certainly were nowhere near the uh, you know the excitement that we were seeing in the television shows, it no longer was total fantasy. It became uh, there's the reality part started to set in. Well, and there's another interesting piece of it too, is that I'm not sure for these, especially for, for child audiences that it was ever entirely fantasy because one of the things that you've got here going on with, with fan culture is that there's a real blurring of the line between reality and fantasy. And some of this goes to early television, where people are still learning how to audience and learning how to think about what's on the television. And kids not having that sophisticated viewership to begin with. Um, these shows really played on that. The Rocket Men were always in character. They did a lot of personal appearances. They did a lot of product endorsement, a lot of contests. And kids felt like these heroes were very accessible to them in their real world. And they had all the, the fan clubs and junior ranger clubs and, and all of that set up for, for children to feel like they were a part of this and that it bled right over into their real lives too. So it all is kind of this, this interesting constellation of stuff going on that eventually culminates in the real world space program. But I think those lines are always very blurry. In fact, you then spend the next section dealing with this whole issue of selling, quote unquote, to children as far as the consumer culture. And this is where, uh, you know, we always talk, we hear about it today, for example. And for example, there's been a lot of changes done with the, uh, you know, with television shows that are geared towards children and what they're allowed to advertise and how they have to do certain things. And yet, uh, this was nothing new. I mean, obviously, even before television, this was going on. But television seemed to come up with a, a particularly new way or a, a much more successful way to sell to kids. And these shows uh, helped. In fact, like I say, your, your third section of the book, as seen on TV, the three essays there all deal with the issues related to toys and the consumer culture. Um, did did the authors here find that this was brand new? Did Were these changes that uh, or what was done from these shows um, bigger than anything in the past? Or, or were there some new things that were learned as far as selling and advertising? I think there's a lot of learning that went on there. Um, Larry Samuel, who 
did the first chapter in that section, The Sky's the Limit. It looks at advertising and consumer culture and how that's elaborated um, with television. Because one of the things that happens with these these series on TV is that you'll get the the story going along and, you know, kids are, are watching whatever the, the episode of the week is. And then as the commercial starts for Johnson's Fudge or whatever it is, um, there's no real change of frame. You get the hero still in his uniform suddenly directly addressing the audience, talking to kids about, you know, ask your mom for, you know, Pep the Solar Cereal or (laughs) whatever the product is. And it takes a minute as you're even, you know, even now as you watch the the DVDs, it takes a minute to realize, oh, the story stopped. (laughs) We're actually in the middle of a commercial here. And then it kind of bleeds back in the story. And then on top of that, you have these segments that are almost little little public service messages that are sandwiched in there in what would be commercial spots that are um, ranger messages that remind kids that they too can be, you know, junior rangers and all you need to do is send in box tops or, you know, whatever um, – And you'll get this junior ranger kit and you get a membership card and you get a decoder ring and you get this great patch. And, you know, everybody will know that you're part of, you know, your particular spaceman's um, group of fans and, you know, and a junior ranger. And this was huge for kids. And there there was very little separation there. Um, and the product development that went along with them, Mark Young's uh, chapter on space toys. This was a huge, huge industry. And all of the, the outfits and the guns and the helmets and um, viewers and all the, the secret stuff. And it was, you know, it was tremendously well elaborated. And moms were under a lot of pressure for kids to have the latest toys. And one of the things about the consumer culture or consumerism, uh, particularly since the 20th century was where it really took off, is the whole idea that not you have to keep coming up with new markets. You have to come up with new products and because you're going to eventually reach a point where everybody has something. So you either have to come up with new or better or improved. And so suddenly uh, there was a new market that or a, a, a revived market in many ways. Um, remember back in the movie A Christmas Story where, uh, if you've seen it, uh, Ralphie gets a little orphan Annie decoder ring. And the first show where they give him a, where he gets the code and he sits there and decodes it. And it turns out it's a commercial for Ovaltine. And he, <laughs> and he says, you know, a crummy commercial. Now he was a little bit smarter in it, but I mean, it's, it's this concept of selling right as part of the story. You almost, it, it, it makes you think of some of the infomercials out there now where they start with a, with a little story. And the next thing you know, they're selling you stuff. But at least in this case, they went back to the story reasonably fast. Oh, yeah. But when you think about these series, they had such a huge domestic impact. Um, 
they were so important to these kids. And, you know, I, I talked to my students about things like this. And this is well before the era of the DVR or even the video recorder. So there was no, I can't watch now, I'll save it for later. You stopped everything and you watched your show. So very often domestic schedules, all the stuff that went on in households, and this was around dinner time, would be orchestrated around these shows so the kids got to see them and you know the pressure on mom to buy a particular kind of bread a particular kind of cereal a particular kind of snack food so that kids could get the wrappers the box tops cut things off the back get whatever secret prize was hidden inside was huge so it affected not only even toy purchase and 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 costuming and, and all that, but just regular domestic products and things that you would find in the kitchen. Yeah, because it's interesting. Nowadays, it's what we would call event television, except back then, everything was event television, because as you point out, it was the only way you could see it, because they didn't even repeat this stuff very often. So, I mean, it, it, television series, even regular series, repeats for only you know they would produce 26 episodes which was half a year and then they'd repeat them all and that was your full year and uh but back then i'm sure a lot of these shows were never repeated it was one time and that was it so if you missed it you missed it exactly exactly and the and they had contests and the stakes for these contests were pretty high i don't know if you've ever seen pictures of the ralston rocket no but I haven't. This, was, this was a huge rocket that if you were the winner of the contest, you won this rocket. <laughs> and, you know, tree houses shaped, you know, shaped like like space vehicles and, um, you know, and you were set for life as a kid if you had the opportunity to win one of these. So, you know, it became a, a focal point of kids interacting with each other to, you know, collect pieces of a, of a mystery puzzle or to collect figures or toys. And it was a way of them relating to each other and creating relationships with each other as well. And that's actually one of the other things that I think was really neat is these fan clubs that kids formed around their favorite rocket man also connected them with kids all over the country. And, you know, at that point it was by letter, but they had this camaraderie. It wasn't just you and the kids in your neighborhood, but you and kids like you everywhere. Right. And then from the consumer part, though, now we can go to the other major uh, part that uh, these series tended to uh, emphasize, and that's the part that we would call the patriotism part. Uh, that's the fourth chap, the fourth section, looking at the earth, the whole issue of democracy and becoming a, a good citizen, and what these shows did to try to foster that belief. Exactly, there was a very strong ideological thrust with all of these series to teach children a particular worldview that was you know, pretty unique to the atomic age. I mean, all of a piece with, you know, American ideology all the way along, but this idea that, um, that they had a purpose to spread democracy, to, um, to look out for, um, 
others who were not considered to be as privileged or as fortunate to, to kind of advance the American worldview. Um, and that was all part of this heroism, you know, and, and even in identifying with their favorite rocket man, it was, you know, kind of this, you know, you wear this patch, you wear this ring, and it identifies you as someone who believes a particular way. Because yeah, um, in the issue of the military, of course, by the 50s, even though we weren't, I mean, especially after Korea, we weren't in a quote-unquote war, any wars except the Cold War. Of course, the Cold War, one of the big issues with the Cold War always was preparation and how you had to be ready. And clearly, for example, Mick Broderick's chapter where he talks about the military-industrial complex and uh, how these series helped to make it clear that this was just an important aspect of growing up, that you had to be, be ready and have to understand why preparation is so important. Oh, exactly. And as some of these rocket men blasted off into space, um, especially Space Patrol, you know, by the very name, um, they're out there patrolling the universe, you know, the, the intergalactic peacekeeping force, which really kind of projects that image of um, Americans' responsibility in that historical moment to... Uh, to disseminate a particular way of life, a particular ideology of, you know, of democracy and justice, but a particular kind of democracy and justice. So then in the, the last, that, the, the last section, the epilogue, the 21st century and beyond, what did Gary Hughes in, in his essay, what did he conclude? Oh my goodness. Gary's, I, I love Gary's chapter in the book because Gary's not an academic, he's a fan. And this was one of one of my favorite aspects of this book was that it brought in someone who grew up with a series, wasn't trying to look at it from a scholarly point of view, but was saying, hey, this changed my entire life. Um, Gary has created a multi-episode series in homage to Commando Cody. And he spends all of his non-employment working time creating rockets in his garage. He built himself a flying suit. Uh, he's got all kinds of, of gadgetry going on all the time. And we're always trading pictures on, on Facebook, in fact, of everybody's latest and greatest inventions and um, and new works of, of outer space magic um, in creating all, all these new artifacts. And so for Gary, this was all about how he grew up with this and it stayed with him as an adult and became such an important part of his adult life and things that he was, um, was still actively engaged in. And this was this was a real door opener for me, too, because Gary connected me to an entire group of adult fans called the Solar Guard who meet once a year and get together and um, bring stuff they've built and trade stories about the old series. And, you know, everybody's um, comes in in uniform and. 
um, and has that sense of camaraderie as a fan community, which is just so important. And, uh, and it was great for me to see that, that the fandom for this was still alive and well. I think sometimes we get into our heads that fandom, that that community only exists online, so to speak, and yet there are still plenty of examples, and this is obviously a very good one, of how there are still people who want to meet in person and come together as a community to celebrate something. And while some people might think this to be, oh, well, that's, you know, you know, kid stuff, it's not. It's in many ways it's the community is the most important aspect and the fact that you can share your interests with other people who have like interests. And that's something that quite frankly, kids wanted, you know, was a good uh, lesson for kids to learn. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, and Gary's production is, has really been terrific. Um, I've seen several of the episodes and he even commissioned an original score that was a, an homage to the scores that, that went with these early series, too. Um, so this is it's it's a tr- terrific professional production um, that kind of keeps it alive. And that's you know, that's another aspect of this is is not just that, hey, we can all get together and reminisce about the old days, but that it also keeps this culture of the rocket men going into the 21st century now that we're post space program. Or still, and we may be post, but I, I, I still think the interest that occurred the last couple of weeks with the landing of Rosetta on the on the comet, it was just unbelievable what you saw as far as interest. Just, and I think more than anything, it was the fact that people just looked and saw that and they just couldn't believe it. Um, I mean, you know, it's just something that that science was actually able to do something that seemed so fantastic and that we quite frankly would have like would probably laughed at when it happened in Armageddon, for example. And yet it actually happened for real that they were actually able to land on a comet. Exactly. But I also wanted to ask you a little bit about the whole editing process. Obviously you've got some experience as a book editor, you know, in editing a collection like this. What is, how much, what kind of work, do you as the editor have to do when you're trying to put together a a series of, of essays such as this? I mean, I've talked to a lot of editors and, and one of the things that that you hear is that everything's different depending on the collection, but I'm sure as someone who, who has edited in the past, what do you find to be some of the major challenges you run into? Wow. Well, I definitely agree that it changes with the collection. I, this one was particularly charmed. I had a group of lovely writers who were enthusiastic about their work, and it just all kind of fell together. I, I joke that the book wrote itself. Um, not every project is like that. I've edited um, seven books at this point, and they all have their, their own character, but... Um, Initially, I think one of the one of the things that I am very aware of is that you're never sure if other people's vision of your project is going to coincide with your vision of your project. Um, I'll you know I'll come up with something. Uh, um, for instance, um, Bo Van Riper and I also edited um, Undead in the West, and we thought we 
had it down of what people were going to send us for potential chapters. And we, we you know, had the, the no-brainers that, that were going to get covered. And no one sent us proposals for those chapters. <laughs> and we weren't sure whether to be amazed or disappointed that, you know, here are these things that we thought were just such obvious choices for this book people weren't really interested in writing about. And, you know, did we, you know, did we care about them enough to try to go out and commission people to write those chapters? Or did we want to see what the book became on its own? Um, so I think that's that's one thing that never stops surprising me. Um, thinking about how this material all goes together. You know, you put out a call for papers, you you get these wonderful abstracts in, and then you, you kind of lay, lay the whole thing out and say, okay, now what? You know, what does this look like? What does it want to be? And and that's always, it's, it's a creative process, and yet it's challenging at the same time because it's very often lopsided, and you have to, you have to cut some things that you're really in love with just to, to kind of balance it out. Um, there are always those regrets of things that you just never got. Um, beyond that, I think it's, it's a lot of people work. And that's probably one of the things that my, um, my, my film and history series, when I have folks doing edited volumes for that, one of the things that we always talk about is how much it's really a matter of building relationships with people and having this long-term working relationship with a given author, because you're looking at least, you know, a year to a year and a half process of, you know, getting this worked through and the, you know, revision process and all that. So you really have to develop relationships with people and learn what motivates people, how to talk to people about their work, because we all tend to be very, you know, sensitive about our own <laughs> writing um, and and how to how to communicate your ideas about what might um, what might highlight an already good idea or, you know, to bring something a little further on track with what you'd envisioned um, by the same token, to be flexible when somebody gives you something that's wonderful and you hadn't expected it or planned on accommodating it, you know, and then changing your own vision. Speaking of which, let's talk a little bit about your other work that you do. I mean, where <laughs> I, I've heard of, so to speak, came to you as a, the name, so to speak, uh, is from Film and History the, the journal and then also the conference talk a little bit about the work that you do with uh with that because as i say it has become now an annual it started every other year but then now between the annual conference plus the the journal uh just some unbelievably great uh writing and programming that we're seeing from and now books that we're seeing from that from that work Film and history has done a tremendous job of giving folks who are interested in that that intersection of society and history and film or television that that speaks to me a place to actually come together and talk to each other. Um, it's the conference this year produced some really, really interesting work. And every year, I think the work that we get gets better and more interesting, whether it's people doing archival work or people looking at, 
um, historical film or history represented on film, uh, found footage, um, exhibition, all of that. There's there's room for so many interesting things to do, and um, and we're getting a lot of of very very good scholarship coming out of that, and it's one of the reasons that I love. Um, being series editor for the film and history book series through Roman and Littlefield is that I've been able to connect with people who are just doing some fascinating work. You know, so far I've got, you know, volumes on food on film and Native Americans on network television and, you know, all kinds of different topics that, that you might not expect to see scholarship on. And yet, um, looking through the lens of history, it gives you a way to talk about them. It's actually, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I've actually <laughs> talked to a couple of your authors already, which is great because as I say, they are interesting books, I've, um, including last the, the interview I did last week with uh, Laura Damore and the, the, the smart chicks on film. And there was an example of an edited volume where I talked to four of the authors, including Anne Laura, and I asked them, and it's the first time they'd ever talked to each other as a group. <laughs> yes. And they found it to be interesting that, 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 you know, something like that, where you could pull it together into such an interesting and great volume. And yet she had to really work hard to mold it into the the structure that it had. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and the series has, um, it's got some single author volumes, like we, you spoke with Bryn Upton in the past, right. um, and then it's got some, some edited volumes as well, and so I like having that mix, too, so that you get that representation and lots of different voices going on. So are you working on any writing at this point yourself, or is it, do you have enough keeping you busy without having to... <laughs> Of course, as a you know, as a scholar, I'm sure you have to write. But I mean, I mean, is there are there subjects that are still particularly of interest to you? Oh yes, there are. As a matter of fact, I'm in the middle of a project right now um, called "The Horrors of War." Um, my last two co-edited volumes, um, well, two out of three of, of my last co-edited volumes, done uh, "Undead in the West," which was on undead westerns. And Undead in the West 2, they just keep coming, which was sort of a sequel, at least conceptually, but broadened out. The, the first book is on film and television, and the second book is um, also includes gaming and fan culture and literature. Um, and as an extension of that, Horrors of War looks at war stories and the undead. So the ghost pilots and um, the you know, undead in the trenches and things like that, which has been great fun to work on. And I've got plans for a horror comedy volume at some point very soon. <laughs> horror comedy, that is that is an interesting topic all by itself because of uh, how so many, especially in more recent times, that uh, not even, I mean, frankly, some people consider uh, uh, Abbott Costello um meet Frankenstein to be one of the better films of all time, let alone uh, a comedy. I mean, by itself, it was considered a very, very well-made film. Oh, absolutely. And then you fast forward to things like Shaun of the Dead, um, Frankenweenie, uh, <laughs> 
and and Dead Snow, which is one of my personal favorites because I've done a lot of work on Nazi zombies. Um, so there's there's the possibilities are endless. Well, yes. Plus, they continue to undie, so that's exactly that's, that's great. <laughs> well, I really enjoyed talking to you. This was uh, interesting because it was topics that. Uh, uh, I think sometimes probably there's a lot of people who are still interested in these topics, and it's great to know that we can nowadays, the great thing about the publishing industry now is that we can get very specialized volumes on topics like this and have people who have like interests writing about them. And as I said earlier, the idea that now scholarly writing, that popular culture is just as important as far as a as writing and even going back even farther than these kind of things, it's not unusual nowadays to be able to find writings related to the topic. And as you say, you've learned quite a bit of the period just from the popular culture. Exactly. So, uh, as I say, I've been speaking with Cynthia Miller, who is the author of, of, excuse me, the co-editor of 1950s Rocket Man TV series and their fans, Cadets, Rangers, and Junior Spacemen, uh, published in 2012. Um, I really enjoyed talking with you, and I'm sure you've got enough other work out there that <laughs> we may have a, a reason to talk again soon, but I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Joel. It was great talking to you. I want to thank Cynthia Miller for her time. I think her enthusiasm for the topic certainly showed in the conversation, and I hope you will enjoy the book. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film.